Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. How we doing? We in a good mood today? Yeah. The whole city's in a good mood these days, am I right? I called it. At least I called it to myself. The Bengals are going to be in the Super Bowl, so that's pretty exciting. I'm excited about that. So uh, lots, of, lots of reasons to celebrate. Not only that, but Jesus is Lord and he's king over all creation. So what a great day to be here. And we've been snowed in, but you guys are, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled to see so many of you here today because uh, a lot of times when there's bad weather, you don't know who's going to show up. But historically, um, CTK people don't let weather hold them down. So praise God for that. Well, um, big shout out is in order for so many people who came to shovel snow and clean up the building yesterday. And so uh, let, me just, let me just roll credits here. Um, David Borson kind of running the effort. So David Borson uh, led the team. Uh, Cameron Waterworth, Sam Jean, Scott Wiggins, uh, Jake Reichwein, Cisco. Uh, those are the names that I had in my notes. And then there's some other names I found out this morning. So Christina Huber was here. Um, uh, Thomas. Thomas, were you here? Thank you, brother. Glad you were here. Uh, the Costa clan, so we had Alex, Esther, Zion, Jordan, Mike Ferguson came, uh, David Bailey, Nate Webrocht, and Elena, I believe, uh, came with him. And then uh, David Himes and Megan Hill. You all here? I don't know if I've met you guys. <laughs> have we met? We've met. Well, wait, we have met. So I saw a video yesterday. Uh, David said, hey, here's a video of all the people helping. I'm like, do I know that guy? But... Thank you all for coming and helping yesterday. I appreciate it. So can we thank these folks for cleaning the building? So these folks, they, they shoveled snow and uh, cleared the lot and all this stuff. But uh, I, I got to do an extra special thank you to Katie Borson. So she gets her own thank you, Katie. She's cursing me right now. Please stop talking about me. No, Katie, so after everybody shoveled and all that, David and Katie took the kids home. Uh, her parents watched the kids, and then they came back and cleaned this whole building. Um, so long day of much service from the, from the Borsons. Katie is a rock star. So uh, we are able to meet in a clean building uh, that we didn't have to, you know, fight the snow to get into because of all these folks. So thank you guys. Praise God for serving the church body in this way. And with that, we're continuing our series in Courageous Church. Uh, it's based on the book of Daniel during the time of exile. And through this series, we're talking about how Christians can have courage to stand strong for Christ in changing times. And today we're going to talk about doing evangelism in exile, doing evangelism in exile. And what I mean by that is explicitly telling people telling non-Christians the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Daniel took place before the time of Christ, so it's not exactly evangelism as we know it, but it's similar enough in this sense. God sent Daniel to deliver an announcement of his kingdom to a pagan man, and that is an announcement, announcement of news that we know is good news. 
So before we get into the text, we'll be in Daniel 2. Um, before we get to the text, I want to give you a definition of evangelism for our purposes today. And it's most simply sharing the gospel with people. And by sharing the gospel, I mean telling people explicitly about Jesus Christ and what he has done. So the word gospel means good news. It's an announcement, right? It's an announcement of something good that has happened. And the particulars is that the gospel is an announcement that Jesus has ushered in his kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection, and he's bringing salvation to the world. So the good news of the gospel is that sin and death and Satan have been defeated, and Jesus reigns in victory over the whole cosmos. So men and women, then, we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God and adopted into his family through faith in Jesus Christ. And so evangelism, then, is personalizing that message for somebody else that you're talking to, calling them to repent of their sin and receive Christ by faith. So I want to take us into Daniel chapter 2. We've already looked at this story. We'll look at it again today. Daniel chapter 2 where Daniel gave an interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And I want to make some connections to evangelism. So Daniel chapter 2, God gives Nebuchadnezzar this vision of the fall of his kingdom and the victory of God's kingdom. And Daniel is the one that's delivering the news. So in this book, Daniel is partially announcing the victory of God, uh, announcing the gospel, and the coming of God's kingdom, but the particular details are shrouded in mystery because they haven't happened yet. So it's a prophecy. It's, a, it's an anticipation. So the victory of the kingdom is announced, but the forgiveness of sin and the repentance of sin, faith, eternal life, all of those things are not revealed in this text. So the gospel wasn't fully revealed until later when Christ came into the world. He was crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and ascended to the Father. So Daniel 2 is not a complete picture of evangelism. However, we can still draw some lessons and inferences from this text, all right? So we're going to look at Daniel chapter 2. Let's dig in. Daniel chapter 2, and we'll hit this story again. We've already told the story before, but we'll, we'll go through different parts of it today. So verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. 
You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Let's pause here. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that disturbs him. He's deeply troubled by it. He perceives that this dream might have some divine origin. It might have some uh, predictive quality to it, but he can't access the meaning to it. He needs somebody who is in connection with the gods, or the real God in this case. He needs somebody with a connection to God to give him an interpretation. He also perceives that his counselors, the magicians and wise men, are lying to him. And he's desperate to know the truth. Now let's jump down to verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to them, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. Meaning it's a prophecy of the future. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living... But in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Let's pause again. So imagine what this would have been like. Daniel was a servant. And he knew the answers that the king was looking for. So Daniel had the advantage, right? He knew exactly what the king's dream was. God had revealed it to him in, a, in, a, in his own dream. But Daniel didn't take credit for it. Daniel was humble. He gave all the glory to God. And he said, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So let's read verse 30 again. He said, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So God gave Daniel specific knowledge. And that knowledge was for the purpose of serving the king with it. All right, let's keep going. Verse 31. This is the part we didn't read when we did this text before. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. 
But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Let me show you a picture of this. So this is some artist's rendering of this vision in uh, Daniel chapter 2. So you see the head is gold, right? And then he's got the, the torso, his chest of silver. So the head is, is, the, is the best part made of gold. And then you have the silver, and then you have the bronze, which is uh, the thigh and the belly, the midsection. And then his legs are made out of iron, and then iron and clay are his feet. And then you have this, you know, kryptonite-looking stone <laughs> that's kind of flying in from outer space. And this stone comes, and it, and it smashes the feet. And, of course, in the, in the vision... Daniel says that the stone, you know, it, it blows everything and smashes it to dust such that the wind could blow it away. So it's like completely destroyed. And then this stone grows and becomes like a huge mountain that fills the horse. So it takes over the whole planet. That's the vision. Let's read a little bit further. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Buckle up. Get ready for this. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So, king, you are at the top. You're the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. So again, here's what the king saw. Something like this. Can you go back to the last one? Here we go. So the, the head at the top, that's the king right? And then b below that is another kingdom that's inferior. So gold goes to silver, a lesser of a precious metal. So it's a little inferior. And then below that is a kingdom of bronze, which is even uh, inferior again. But then this fourth kingdom will come along and it's made of iron. So it's not so much dazzling as it is very, very strong. And then at the feet, you have this partly iron, partly clay mixture. And so it's partly brittle and partly soft. So this, was the, this vision was prophetic. Now let's go to the other, the other uh, slide, the other image. There we go. These line up historically with these various kingdoms that were to come over the next few hundred years. So Babylon, that's Nebuchadnezzar, that's his kingdom. Persia came after that. Greece came after that. Um, and that would be Alexander the Great. Um, and then you have Rome which came, and there's different interpretations. So this image represents one interpretation, but there, there are different kingdoms that different scholars say it might represent. 
But this thing at the bottom is this divided Roman Empire, and the way that this image depicts it is that you have a kingdom, uh, and they say that represents Rome, because Rome is this powerful nation, but it's not united, because Rome is comprised not of one people, but of various conquered peoples under Roman's thumb. And so this is the situation in Jerusalem during the time Jesus was born. You had a Jewish people occupied and conquered by the Romans, and so there was this division within the kingdom. All right, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So that's the kryptonite meteorite looking thing. Kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So Nebuchadnezzar's vision was prophetic, and it came to pass over the next 500 years until the time of Christ. So, of course, the, the Roman Empire was in power during the time of Jesus, and it wasn't, there was an instability about it, right? Because Romans ruled over people that were not of the same, you know, they're not the same people. So there's instability there. Now, the kingdom that shall stand forever is the kingdom of God, and that is ushered in by Jesus Christ. And in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus established his eternal dominion over all creation. So it's a stone that became a mountain that filled the whole earth. And Jesus received all authority in heaven and earth, as him, Jesus announced himself in the Great Commission. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All right, last two verses here. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So Nebuchadnezzar responded by honoring Daniel. He gave the highest praise to Daniel's God who revealed this mystery. So Daniel is the messenger. Daniel had the truth of God that God had given him. And he announced to Nebuchadnezzar the coming of God's kingdom, and Nebuchadnezzar responded with praise to the true God. Now, that's not quite evangelism, but it's similar. It's an announcement of the victory of God, an announcement of God's kingdom to a person who is not a believer. So it's not quite evangelism. So Daniel doesn't have a gospel tract that he hands to him, and he walks him through the four laws. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't repent of his sin, become a Christian. But it is a proclamation of the victory of God. So it is an announcement, and Nebuchadnezzar does respond positively to it. So with this, I want to take this story, and I want to draw out four points about evangelism from this story, and then apply those to our context. So here's four points about evangelism. The first one is God is at work in the lives of non-Christians. God is at work in the lives of non-Christians. We see that very plainly here in this story, right? Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king of Babylon, but he received this vision that God had given him in this dream, and it's a vision of God's kingdom. 
And we have good reason to believe that God may still do things like this. And I've heard stories of this, especially in pioneering missionary environments. So you might have heard stories of this where you might have a, a, a people that have not heard of Jesus, and then a missionary will show up and preach the gospel to them, and then someone in, in this, among this people will say something to the effect of, I've seen you in a dream, and I've, I heard that I, I met this guy in a dream who said his name is Jesus, and he was sending somebody to me. I mean, this, this is a well-documented phenomenon that happens in pioneering missionary environments where somebody will have a vision of Jesus, and in that vision, the, Jesus doesn't evangelize for them. Jesus didn't say, hey, uh, I created you, I have a wonderful plan for your life, uh, I died for your sin. Jesus didn't say that, but Jesus tells them, someone will come to you, listen to what they have to say. Um, and that's a, that's a well-known phenomenon. And so like, God is involved. And it's because God has compassion for those who don't know him. And we see, here another place we see in the Old Testament, God's compassion for the lost is in Jonah, whenever Jonah was sent to Nineveh. So here's the very last verse of the book of Jonah, Jonah 4.11. God says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle, which is one of my favorite little phrases in the whole Bible. And there's cows there too, Jonah. So, I mean, think about how striking this is that these people, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And Assyria is, I mean, that's, whenever in the Old Testament times you hear Nineveh, you hear Assyria, I mean, the Darth Vader music plays in the Jewish people's heads, All right, These are very wicked, evil, awful, violent people. And God is saying to Jonah, hey, these people don't know the right hand from their left. Should I not have pity on these folks? So on the one hand, yes, they're a horribly wicked people, and they're under God's judgment for their sins. And so Jonah was sent to preach God's judgment to them. But on the other hand, God was willing to spare them and show mercy to them if they repented and turned away from their sin. I think the same thing is true in our day. God is at work in the world, and God is at work in the lives of non-Christians all around us. So on the one hand, yes, no, no problem acknowledging the world is sinful and rebellious. There's violence and corruption. There's greed, deceit. There's immorality. Whatever kind of sin you can think of, we got it here on earth. But on the other hand, God is compassionate towards those who don't know Jesus. And God is willing to show mercy to those who repent and embrace Jesus by faith. And that's because they're not merely sinners. Being sinful is not the totality of what God sees in them. They are image bearers of God who are lost and estranged from God. And in the words of Jonah, they don't know their right hand from their left. And so out of God's compassion for the lost, God sends us out among them to bear witness to the gospel. I read this to you a couple weeks ago, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. I'll read it again. The Apostle Paul says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because every person you meet is an eternal soul. Every non-Christian we know bears the image of God. A person has the divine imprint 
upon them. First Timothy 2 tells us God desires their salvation. Because God is compassionate. God is merciful. So God's at work in the lives of non-Christians. Here's the second point. Non-Christians are more open to the gospel than you think. Non-Christians are more open to the gospel than you think. Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar had this disturbing dream. He was so disturbed by it, he was willing to commit murder to find out the meaning of the dream. Fast forward to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 tells us that every human soul has an innate knowledge of God, but they suppress it because they love sin. Every person has an innate knowledge of God, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, is what Romans 1 says. Let me read this here. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what I just read to you describes the natural state of every human soul. This is every human being. So several important things from this Romans 1 text. Number one, everybody has this innate knowledge of God. Since everyone is created in the image of God, they have the divine imprint, so they have this innate knowledge of God. Two, this knowledge is revealed through creation. And the things that God has made, he's clearly perceived, his, his, his power, his attributes, all of these things are, are evident in creation if people are willing to see it. But number three, People suppress this truth in unrighteousness. And then number four, people exchange this truth for a man-made religion that they can control. In our day, secularism is the most common religion. And it's effective because it masquerades as a non-religion. But it is a religion. And then number five, this innate knowledge of God is enough to condemn them Paul says, hey, they've seen enough of God, so they're without excuse. But it's not enough to save them. So this innate knowledge is not so much knowledge that they know the fullness of the gospel. No human being can reason themselves to Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life and died in our place as a substitution for our sins and was raised on the third day, and we can have eternal life through repentance and faith. Nobody can reason their way there. But there is sufficient knowledge to where they know something made me and something's messed up about this world and there's a pretty good chance I'm a part of the problem. That knowledge is innate. Everybody, Romans 1 assures us, everybody has this knowledge within them. So then number six, in order to be saved from the wrath of God, they need explicit knowledge of the gospel 
and they can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So in the text I just read to you, hit reverse, go two verses back, verse 16. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's where we come in. Jesus sent Christians into the world as his ambassadors, as representatives of his eternal heavenly kingdom. And so in the modern world, I think people are like Nebuchadnezzar. I think people are willing to listen to the truth if someone is willing to speak the truth. So all people created in God's image, all people have this innate knowledge of the truth of God within them, and all people are suppressing it. They don't want to face it. They love their sin too much. And so they suppress it by lying to themselves, and they know they're doing it. And the lie could take any number of forms, but a common version now is there is no God. But if there is a God, I'm sure I'm okay because there's lots of worse people in the world than me. So, you know, if God averages it all out, I'm probably on the plus side of things, and he'll probably take me to heaven when I die. That's the lie people tell themselves. And so people convince themselves of the lie by repeating it over and over again until it becomes more believable. And they repeat these lies to one another until they gain social credibility. And everybody can think of somebody smarter themselves that believes the same lie they do. And they think, well, somebody smarter than me with a PhD and, you know, a really smart guy, IQ of 200, believes the same lie I believe, so I'm sure it's true. And then they emotionally commit to their lie. And they make these lies a foundational belief that governs other beliefs. And in so doing, they're becoming more arrogant and foolish. As Romans would say, claiming to be wise, they become fools. And yet, the innate knowledge of God nags at them. They can't get away from the image of God that is imprinted upon their soul. And so the knowledge of God persists. They know God. They know him. They're suppressing that knowledge, but they do, they do know God. And yet they know they're lying. And they know everybody else is lying. And deep down they think, well, there can't be any truth then. How do you know anything is true or anything is real at all? So on the surface, they might pretend that everything is okay. They might confidently assert, this is what I believe. This is true. But the confidence often comes from doubt because they're trying to convince themselves of something. But underneath, the knowledge of God within them won't allow them to fully embrace it. They know that it isn't true. They can't actually believe it. They're suppressing the truth, and they're afraid to admit it. So if nobody ever comes along and challenges those beliefs, then they're, they're lost eternally. What's the alternative then? I mean, what can they do? Now, with Nebuchadnezzar, he knew the truth was painful. The image, the, the vision terrified him. He was scared to death of what he saw, and yet he reasoned that a painful truth is better than a pleasant lie. I think there's a lot of non-Christians out there who would rather hear a painful truth 
than to be told pleasant lies. Romans 1 says God has implanted knowledge of himself within every human soul. He's revealed to him that he is the powerful, sovereign creator. Everybody has an innate knowledge of this, an innate sense of this. They have this sense that something is wrong with the world and that they're probably part of it. And that's a frightening place to be. Unless you also know the end of the story, which is we also have a redeemer in Jesus Christ whom that God sent into the world to embody truth, to speak truth, and to deliver us from our lies and our darkness. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we can come to the Father through him. We can be reconciled to our creator God by repenting of our sin and receiving Christ by faith. And so I think non-Christians are more receptive to the truth than we give them credit for. I think there's a lot of Nebuchadnezzar-type non-Christians out there. It's like, I'm terrified. I'm really scared. I think there's a God out there. I've seen something. And they would rather be told an unpleasant truth than a pleasant lie. And whether, where they are on that spectrum is where evangelism comes in. Evangelism is how you find out. And if you're sharing Christ with somebody, they may disagree with you initially. They might even get offended. And that's where we need some compassion for them to recognize, like, what we're saying is, is a disagreement about ultimate things. Evangelism can be uncomfortable because it begins with a disagreement. There's an element of conflict even because you're correcting something and introducing something into their mindset, into their worldview that they don't currently accept. And so you're speaking truth into the lies that they've built their whole lives upon. So we shouldn't be surprised whenever there's disagreement or it's uncomfortable. I mean, you could even say that evangelism is the art of persuasive disagreement. But your love and your compassion for them is what can help you overcome the discomfort of disagreeing with them. More often than not, you'll probably find that they respect you more and trust you more for being the only person that really speaks honestly with them. That can happen. And if you go through the book of Acts, we studied this, uh, what, a year or two ago? You go through the book of Acts, there's three responses to the gospel that we consistently see. You see, some people are hostile, and they're like, we want nothing of this. A lot of people are open, but not ready. And then some people are ready. I think the hostile category, there's, I think there, there are those that are out there, but they may not be as many as you think. And I think there's a lot more that are open and ready than we think. So this can be a good and helpful conversation to have with them because by preaching the gospel to them, you're introducing into their world something that they need to consider and grapple with. And some of them, especially if you persist over time, some of them may respond positively. Here's the third point. We need to proclaim the gospel in a spirit of humility. We need to proclaim the gospel in a spirit of humility. Let me read verse 30 again. Daniel said, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So God gave Daniel insight into Nebuchadnezzar's mind and his dreams 
in order to serve Nebuchadnezzar, but not to gloat over Nebuchadnezzar about his coming demise. Daniel was humble. He, he, res, he was respectful in his approach to the king, and he didn't take credit for himself. He didn't brag about what he knew. He didn't drop the mic. He didn't talk smack. He gave all glory to God. He said, hey, I'm no smarter than anybody else. I'm, I, I have no magical powers. I'm not any better than your Chaldeans and your magicians and all these other guys. The reason why I know this is because I know the God who reveals mysteries, and he put me here to tell you what it is. So there wasn't a pride about Daniel. Now, here's the thing. Any faithful presentation of the gospel can put people on the defensive because you're calling them to repent of sin, right? So when you're sharing the gospel, people may assume you're being arrogant. They might presume you're being self-righteous even when you know you're not being that. Even though you're being humble, the perception could be that you're being self-righteous because you're identifying a sin, or the fact that they're sinful and they need to repent. And so naturally, somebody's self-justification is going to kick in. Everybody's got an internal hypocrisy detector. It's the, one, it's the one standard we can all recognize. When you're not living up to your own standard, we can see that and nobody likes a hypocrite. So it's a self-justification technique and they might respond, well, who are you to judge? Man, if you are being judgmental, if you're coming with a condemning attitude towards them, then that's a fair question. But a great way to counter that is to humbly demonstrate that you too are under the wrath of God apart from faith in Jesus and that you too need the gospel as much as they do. There's a rumor going around, you may have heard this, that some Christians can be self-righteous and judgmental. Now, I saw this on a meme or something once, so it may be true. But if you're unwilling to acknowledge that, if you're unwilling to acknowledge your own sin, your own need for the gospel, then you're going to confirm their suspicions. And be like, I knew it. It's like, all he wants is to feel better about himself, about himself by calling me the sinner. And so if that's the way we present ourselves to people, we're going to confirm everything that they already thought about us. But you can counter that. Let's say that you're willing to confess your own sin, confess your need for Christ, if, you're will, if you are willing to do that, then there's a better chance they might trust you because you're not, you're not coming in this superior attitude, but you're saying, hey, you and I are similar in that we both need Jesus. And I'm just trying to show you who Jesus is. I want to introduce you to, to my Savior. So if you freely acknowledge your sin, and even if appropriate, you have to make a judgment call on this, but if it's appropriate, give specific examples, you can help gain trust. But here's the truth. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And that's you too. Before you knew Christ, that's you. That's me. That's all of us. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So part of our evangelistic witness needs to include, hey, I'm, I'm a sinner too. I'm, I'm not coming to you as somebody better than you. I'm not here to, to condemn you. That's not my place. I'm here to, to tell you about Jesus Christ. And you have to repent of your sin. And maybe you can have a conversation about what that is. But you're, 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 you're showing that you need Jesus just as much as you're saying they do. 
and that the gospel is your hope moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day for the rest of your life. All right, here's the last one. Number four, we need to love people enough to risk offending them. I'm not saying you have to offend people. I'm not saying that. But we have to love people enough to take that risk where we might offend them. It's an important distinction. So don't miss the significance of what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar saw a vision. Daniel told him what it meant. And at the time, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on the planet. And he was ruling in the most powerful kingdom on the planet. And what Daniel said, essentially, I'm sure he said it in a very nice way. (laughs) But what he said to Nebuchadnezzar is, your kingdom is going to fall to an inferior kingdom. Oh, mighty Nebuchadnezzar, whom God has given power over all the things of the world. But your kingdom is going to fall to an inferior kingdom. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the number one overall seed. And you're about to go down in the first round to a number 16 seed. I love you. Uh, Hope things go well with you. But your kingdom is going to fall to an inferior kingdom. That's a tough message to deliver. And then ultimately, there's this eternal kingdom that's never going to fall that God himself will set up. And it's going to smash all the other kingdoms to smithereens and bring them to an end and set up his kingdom, which will last forever, because my God is victorious. And then he threw in, just for good measure, the dream is certain and its interpretation sure. (laughs) I'm not questioning this. I am very confident in what I just told you, Nebuchadnezzar. This is the facts. I think in our day, we, we don't want to take the risk. We don't want to take the risk of saying something that might rub the other person the wrong way. So in our day, we often think of evangelism merely as sharing with somebody how their sins can be forgiven. And that's true. But properly speaking, evangelism is a bigger announcement. It's the announcement that God's eternal kingdom has arrived in Christ. And it's good news that Jesus has triumphed over his enemies. And that sin and death and Satan have been defeated and Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And in Jesus' kingdom, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Jesus rules over the nations for all eternity. Jesus and his kingdom is the rock that shatters our earthly kingdoms and brings them into submission under his lordship. Now, if you say that to a pagan king who's ruling the most powerful nation in the world, you're risking offending him. But God revealed it to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel announced the prophetic meaning. And Daniel spoke the truth. So think about how that would have landed with Nebuchadnezzar. You think he might have been offended? You think Daniel wondered if Nebuchadnezzar might be offended? I'm sure Daniel added in his mind, like, oh man, this could really get ugly. But he, he hung in there and he spoke the truth. It would have been an unpleasant truth, but it was the truth. And what we saw by Nebuchadnezzar's response is that he respected Daniel and even honored him for having done so. Nebuchadnezzar responded positively to the message. If Daniel was afraid, certainly he would have been delightfully surprised when it worked out well for him and Daniel was placed into a position of power. Verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So Daniel had the courage to speak truth to the king, 
because he was not ashamed of his message. Now, Romans 1.16, we've read this already. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Friends, the victory of Christ is nothing to be ashamed of. And that's the gospel. In the gospel, we are announcing a victory. We're not apologizing for it. It's something that we can be excited about. Nevertheless, because of the element that might offend people within our message, Christians can sometimes be tempted to be ashamed of it. It's a temptation. And whenever somebody is ashamed of their faith, then what they want to do is to remove the offensive parts, to remove the things that might chafe against the other person, and those are often the very things that the other person needs most to hear. But we're tempted to soften the message and tone it down. So let me confess this to you guys. I've done this. I've done this. This is uh, not something I'm proud of, but especially earlier in my ministry, as I reflect back over the years, I've seen that I've done this. To where there's, there's things in the gospel message, things in the scriptures on the whole, that are not as popular, not only with the world, but not even popular amongst Christians. And so there have been parts of my faith that I've been embarrassed about. And so the temptation within me is to think like, well, I should just not talk about that. Let's avoid that. And if I avoid that, then everybody will think I'm a great guy and things will go well. But then the Lord convicted me of that. And I found a way to make it a moral issue because I was trained to think that, oh, that's what cultural engagement means. Having a good witness means never saying anything that might offend somebody. That's being missional. But in my heart, I knew what I was doing. I I knew I was wanting to be acceptable and find an acceptable way to cover for being ashamed of Jesus and being ashamed of his word. And so for us, like the more cultural hostility we experience, then uh, the more tempted we'll be to be ashamed of it, right? I mean, that's, why, why would Paul write, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? I'm sure that there was a temptation that he faced. And so he, he declares that I'm not ashamed of it. So the more hostility we face, potentially, the more temptation we'll face to be ashamed of it. It's that, it really is that simple. It is not more missional to hide the culturally offensive parts of our faith. If we took everything out that might offend people, then we'll end up taking Jesus out too, and there's no gospel left, because Jesus is the rock of offense. So uh, Romans 9.33, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That stone of stumbling and rock of offense is Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a rock of offense. And so the temptation then that, that, that any of us will face is that it's like, well, maybe, maybe I can just not say anything and people will think well of me and people will think I'm nice. But think of what we're actually, what's, what's the bargaining there? We're reasoning that we'd rather let people go to hell and think that we're being nice 
rather than risk offending them for the sake of their souls. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying be provocative or be purposefully offensive. I hope you don't hear me saying that. I'm saying that if the time comes for you to say something that will be offensive, even though that's not your intent, don't back down. So I'll be the first to say I've been guilty of this, and, and I've, over the years, I've, I've, as I've become aware of it, I've repented of that. I don't want to live my life being afraid of what the Bible says and to be ashamed of Jesus. But I don't think I'm the only one, and I would venture that this is the Achilles heel of modern evangelicalism. I think that we care too much what the world thinks about us. As a general rule, I think this is true. All too often, the metrics Christians use for how missional we are is whether or not the world loves us. So I saw this piece in the New York Times a few days ago. They ran this piece, The Dissenters Trying to Save Evangelicalism from Itself. And so it goes on to profile and celebrate um, some of the prominent evangelical leaders that were handpicked by the New York Times. And the New York Times is saying, hey, these are the Christians that we like. These are the ones that can get through the editorial process of the New York Times, and we want to hold these up as these are the Christians that you should follow. And I'm bringing it up because I was, I was annoyed that a, a fellow pastor friend of mine that's in another city posted that saying, hey, this is great. This is amazing. And I'm like, you're telling people to look to the New York Times for the perfect model of Christianity. Now, I'm not speaking to the particular merits of the article itself. Uh, that's a different issue. I'm saying like, the fact that the New York Times would try to set the agenda for us is in itself an issue that we should be very discerning about, right? Like, the New York Times doesn't get to tell us how to live out our faith because we answer to Jesus, not the editorial board of the New York Times. So the article does have an agenda. And as a pastor, as Christians, um, for me, it's like I have a public role in representing the Christian faith. And it's tempting for me to be the sort of Christian that would be celebrated by the New York Times. Because if you can get through the New York Times, you can get about anywhere. And so that's a temptation I face and that we all face. It's to avoid saying or doing anything that might be offensive to people, while also knowing that offending people may very well be on the road through which a person's salvation would go. We might, we might have to. It's a risk we have to take. So love for people is willing to risk being offensive to them in appropriate ways, not intentionally trying to offend, but knowing that that might happen. But love is willing to take that risk for the sake of their souls. So tying this together, as I said earlier, I think people are more open to the gospel than we realize. And a lot of times we don't say things because of the hesitations that I mentioned, we don't want to give offense, we don't want people to not like us, whatever, but I think people are open. I think a lot of people are hungry for truth, and we have the greatest truth of all to share with them. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, right? I'll conclude with this. You ever heard of Penn Gillette, Penn and Teller, Penn and Gillette? It's uh, Penn and Teller's this comedy, magic, duo, performers. Um... But Penn and Teller, uh, Penn Gillette is an outspoken atheist. And so um, I heard this story once. It's, it's amazing to me. There was a man who came up to him in one of his shows and tried to share the gospel with him. And so Penn Gillette shares the story. He said he was kind, nice, 
sane, <laughs> looked me in the eyes, talked to me, and gave me a Bible. And then he says, I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. That's Penn Jillette saying this. He's an atheist. He said, I don't respect people who wouldn't try to evangelize me. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not, or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, listen to what he says here. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And that's really important. He's speaking about this guy that tried to evangelize him. Now, Pendulet is an atheist. A guy who is pretty openly hostile to the Christian faith. And this guy said, I don't respect anybody who would call themselves a Christian and wouldn't at least try to evangelize me. Now, that's not what we would expect to hear from an atheist. But that's exactly what he says here. Now, that's a famous story. I've told it before in my sermons, but it illustrates the points that I've been making. I'll recap them here and we'll close. One, God is at work in the lives of non-Christians. We need to have the faith to believe that. Number two, they're more open to the gospel than we give them credit for. I think there's a lot of non-Christians that are open to the gospel and probably are eager for somebody to just open their mouths and tell them that they're wrong and that they need to believe in Jesus and repent of their sin and how to do it. I think they're open to that more than we give them credit for. Number three, when we do so, we need to do it with a spirit of humility to not be triumphalistic or, or sounding as though we're judging them self-righteously or hypocritically, but do so with humility. And four, when we do it, we can't back down. We can't be ashamed of the gospel. We have to love them enough to risk offending them. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we give you all worship and praise, and we thank you that you are the rock, the stone that smashes all kingdoms of men in, in the earth, and that you are um, victorious and you reign over all the nations now. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will help us to faithfully proclaim the good news of your victory. And you'll give us courage that we can be a courageous church to stand strong for the truth of Christ in changing times, even though it seems like there's hostility and it can be a fearful thing to do. Help us, Lord, to, to, to not give in to the fear, but to be faithful representatives and witnesses of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you will, that you will help us, God, to, be, to have a fruitful witness. I pray for those that we know right now that may come to mind that don't know Jesus and that we can, we can have the courage to pray for them and that you will give us opportunities to speak the gospel to them with humility, but speak the truth. And we thank you, Jesus, that we need the gospel as much as anyone else. And that's what we celebrate now as we come to the table, that we need the gospel of Jesus because we're no better than anyone else. We just simply know our Savior and we've been forgiven. So thank you, Jesus, for giving your body and your blood for our sake, dying in our place, that we can be reconciled to you through faith. We worship you and we pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.